So I promised a, a while ago, I promised Don Bunch that we were going to be spending Christmas in the book of Numbers. And uh, he, he said that I was going to have to prove it because, I mean, the book of Numbers. I mean, it's a, it's a book that, if, if you've been reading it this holiday season, has some pretty amazing gems in there. But there's one gem in particular that is found in the Christmas story. And so, let's just go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. See, the context of this passage is there is a man, and his name, he's a king, and his name is Balak. And Balak has heard of the Israelites, and he's heard of, of how the Israelites are, are on their journey to the promised land, and he doesn't really want them to come into his territory because he, he doesn't really want to have to go to battle with them because he's heard of the God that is protecting the Israelites. And so he comes up with this diabolical scheme, and that is he's going to hire out uh, some Bibles call a soothsayer or a sorcerer or somebody who uh, makes a living predicting the future or pronouncing curses on individuals or nations. And so he finds this man named Balaam. And Balaam is, is uh, he's, he's a mercenary. His talents are for hire. And so Balak seeks to hire out Balaam. And yet every time... Balaam uh, asks God, which is very interesting because Balaam is not necessarily a follower of the God of Israel, but he knows he's heard about him, and so he, he gives honor or he gives prestige to the God of Israel. But every time he goes and asks the God of Israel, what should I do? The God of Israel says, you are not to curse, but you are to bless. But for Balak, who's not in that conversation between Balaam and God, every time he hears Balaam get up, he thinks it's going to be a curse. And yet here comes a blessing. And found in his third blessing is this beautiful verse. Uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Let us pray. Father, Lord, it's always an amazing time this time of the year because we start to see decorations go up. We see Christmas lights. There are these, these scenes where you can even drive through, and if you turn your radio to a specific channel. You get to hear Christmas songs play along to the coordinated lights. Lord, it's a season of cheer. It's a season of joy. And in a year that we've had, we need this season the most. And so, Father, as we look at this Christmas story in the wilderness, we ask that you would just draw us nearer to you, Lord. For praying this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. I always find it really, really interesting around Christmas because it, it's almost like around Christmas comes all these stories, 
right, stories of the year that were, that were fantastic. There's this guy, he's a YouTuber, and he realized that every December, porch pirates go and steal packages off of porches. And even with the development of Ring or, you know, video systems, it still happens. The month of December, more packages are stolen than in any other month. And so he, being an engineer of sorts, came up with this brilliant plan that he's going to make a package that really has four phones on the inside, a stink bomb, and glitter. Not like the, you know, kind of casual glitter. No, the glitter that like somehow two years later, you're like still going about your life and there's still glitter falling off of you. That type of glitter. And so he makes, and he's been doing this for several years, and so every year around Christmas, he, he in fact, in one of his most recent videos that came out this past week, he talks about how, is it kind of crazy that I dedicate almost an entire season of my life to manufacturing a professional stink glitter bomb? And he's like, nah, I don't really think it's that crazy, because porch piracy happens in the month of December. And so this year was different. He, he manufactures it, he configures it, and instead of it being a stink bomb, he gets some very potent skunk spray. So it's, it's more potent. He gets the, the glitter on the top, and he, he realized, because of trial and error, that what would happen is people would, would open the package, and there it would be, and then they would immediately put the box back over the package. And so he put these two bars that stick out that once, they, once you lift the box, they, they, they extend, and then there's a rod that goes down into them that can only be lifted up with a magnet, so it's impossible to stick the box back on. And so he, has, he videotapes it. There's four phones actively videotaping. He set it up to where he can send a voice message to one of the phones, and it will audibly transcribe the voice message that he sends. Now, why does he do this? Because... As a fan of the movie Home Alone, he's inspired to bring about some justice. In fact, when you lift, when you lift the, boss, uh, the, boss, the box, there's a line that is said from Home Alone. And then it starts to count down. 15, 14, 13. What would you do if you, you stole a box? Now, none of y'all would steal a box, but if you did, just hypothetically... You stole a box, and you lift it, and all of a sudden, here comes glitter, and then here comes a skunk spray, and then it starts to count down. What would you do? I assure you that I would panic, and I would run that thing out of the house as fast as possible. Well, on his YouTube video, he shows some responses, and he, you, you get a complete across the, the whole, every situation you could think of. You have individuals who try to slam the box back on. You have individuals who throw it in a trash can. You have individuals that rush it out the door. You have individuals that start laughing because they just know that it's a glitter bomb and then it starts to smell and you see them start to put their, their shirt over their nose and, or you know, they, they, they start to put on gloves and, 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 and whatnot, right? But it's funny because he actually spends a good portion of his video showing not just porch piracy, but the incidents where somebody saw the box that had been left on a porch, picked it up, and called 
to try to return it because they, he, they didn't want the box to be stolen. And he talks about in this video how he's realized that that actually happens more than boxes are stolen. And I think there's a reason for that. See, every Christmas, whether or not we're Christian or not, there's a story that starts to get told. And it comes through in our songs, it comes through in our actions, it comes through in what churches put out on the front lawn. And it's the story of a baby found in a manger who we proclaim as our God in the flesh. But sometimes we get those events around the birth mixed up. Sometimes when we look at a nativity scene, we see there's this manger, and then there's, you have Joseph, and you have Mary, and then you have the shepherds, and then there are three individuals that are almost always in the nativity scene. Three wise men. Now, I have an issue with that because that's, we're, we're going to find out that's not actually the sequence of events. And so I would rather see a nativity scene where there's Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, obviously, because Jesus is the center. And then there's the shepherds. And I would rather see a baby Yoda or a Santa than the three wise men. And the reason for that is because then we can at least just admit that they're not trying to be biblically accurate, that they're more so going for a sense of humor. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It's going to be page, if you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's going to be page 957 in that Bible. Matthew chapter 2. Page 957. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Together, all the chiefs all the chief priests and scribes of the, of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may, uh, may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, have you ever been in a situation where 
Somebody has to persuade you to do something, and their persuasive uh, argument doesn't actually seem all that persuasive. You ever been in a situation like that? I mean, it's, it's almost like if you go to this store at this time and you stand in this line, you're going to get a major discount. And then you get there and you realize that the discount is 25%. And so major wasn't necessarily what you were thinking, because when I hear major, I'm thinking like 70. I'm thinking nearly free when I think of major discount. I'm not really thinking of like a sale that kind of happens towards the end of a season. I'm thinking, no, like this is a sale that, that should never be missed. In fact, when the new iPhone came out, everyone was in New York City. I mean, the, the line was, I mean, it was forever long. People had camped out. Right? And so people are standing there and they're in line and they're, and they're dressed and, and they're, you know, they're waiting and they're, there's this excitement about the iPhone and they're thinking about all the possibilities that the iPhone's going to have. And here comes this individual and he just starts walking past everyone in the line. And he walks to the front of the line and it's right when the door is opening and he walks in first. Nobody says a word. And he walks in and he buys an iPhone. And he comes out with an iPhone first. Didn't camp overnight, didn't stand in line, just walked right in. He got interviewed as the first person to buy the iPhone. How did you do it? And he said, I just figured somebody would stop me. But nobody did, so I just kept going. And then he told how it was actually a friend of his that dared him to do it just to see if anyone would tell him, hey, back of the line, bud, like, what are you doing? Like, we camped out overnight, right? The, the argument for the iPhone was what? If you get the iPhone, your life will be tremendously better. You'll have the world at your fingertips, right? And for most of us, we're in generation 12 of iPhones or smartphones. I was an Android user for a little bit, and then I saw the light, and I went back to iPhone. So, um, but, but if you notice... We're told these promises all the time. We're persuaded to do things all the time. Here are some magi from where? From the east. And where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. Why did they go to Jerusalem? They saw a star. Well, how do they know that the star means anything? How, how are they aware? I mean, think about it. You look out and you see the stars and all of a sudden you're just like, wow, that one looks new. How would you know that? You would have to be very aware of the stars to be like, huh, that one's, I feel like that one's different. Like, it, it might move a little bit. Like, I feel like it's, it's tracking, like it's going somewhere. This is what it says in verse uh, 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So we know the Magi are from the east. So how do they have this awareness of this new star? Well, there was this man. His name was Balaam. And he was a sorcerer. And he wrote down things. And in his writings, he kind of became a religious leader to a certain group of people. And in one, some of his writings, he has his blessings on Israel that are found in Numbers chapter 24. And this is what he says. A star shall come forth 
from Jacob, a, a scepter shall rise from Israel. This is Balaam. So the wise men know of this star because of Balaam. They don't have the entire Old Testament. They don't have the writings of Moses. They don't have, they have the writings of an individual that was a sorcerer. And yet God still led them to Jerusalem. But notice, where do they go? They're very smart. They're wise men. And so they go to the king. They go to the palace. And they, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I find that really startling that wise men from the east are the ones who have to come to the leader of Israel, Herod, in the palace, in the capital, and say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Why is it not anyone in Israel that's saying that? Why is it somebody that's on the outside, somebody that's deemed other, somebody that's deemed far from God, bringing truth to God's people? That's fascinating. And yet, look what Herod's response is in verse 3. When Herod heard, uh, yeah, when Herod heard, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Well, of course. Some wise men show up from the east and they say, hey, where's the king of Israel? Where's the king that's just been born? And you're king, what's your natural inclination going to be? Oh, man. There's a threat to my throne. And so he's troubled. But notice who else is troubled with him? All Jerusalem. See, Jesus' birth is an interruption to normalcy, tradition, and comfort. It's an, it's an interruption. It completely shifts everything. It shows the, the uh, fragility of our lives. Because think about it from Herod's perspective. He's king. He's living this fancy life. He's, I mean, he's got everything at his fingertips. He's the ruler. And yet, here come some wise men from the outside, and they're saying, hey, where's the new king that's just been born? The king who is the true king. Well, his entire worldview has just been shattered. Because to him, he's thinking he's going to be king, and then he's going to die, and then his child or somebody related to him will be king, and, and he, his family will be in line for the throne for until some family member messes it up. That's what he's thinking. And all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, is also thinking along these lines, that their life is kind of fixed on this point, and there's, there's really nothing new that's going to break in. In fact, as a people, they were supposed to be holding on to this promise of this coming king, of this coming Messiah, of this coming conqueror. And yet, it's become superstition to them. It's become something that they've just heard. And they haven't seen it, and so they're doubting it. And yet here come these three wise men, and they come in, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star. And so Herod, he gathers, in verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's a smart man. He calls together all the pastors, all the theologians, all the individuals who know the Bible, and he's like, hey, come on, guys. Um, where's the Messiah going to be born again? And they're like, oh, well, it says in our scripture, this is what the prophet says, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
They know the answer. And yet, they're still troubled. They know what the Bible says. They know the promises of Jesus. And yet, they weren't aware of the star. And now these foreigners have come bringing what should be fantastic news, the best news of all time, and they're troubled. I mean, this is a story that almost seems too... It, it, it just seems like nobody in their right mind would write that story that way if they were trying to make up a story. It's, it's, it's insulting to the history of Israel that outsiders would come and, and announce to all of Jerusalem that the king had been born. And notice Herod's response. After learning that the, that the Messiah is going to be born at Bethlehem, he secretly calls the Magi because he doesn't want everyone else to know. And he asks, when did the star appear? He's investigating. He's searching because he has a plan that he's trying to create on the spot. And it's one that eliminates the threat. And so he calls the Magi in and, and he sends them to Bethlehem and he says to go and search carefully for the child. And once they find him, to come back and tell me. And so the wise men, they see the star again and they go and then they find Jesus. Now, I'm someone that, I mean, my wife knows this all too well, and uh, Carl learned this recently because I was in the car with him when we were picking up some furniture, and I, I'm a really good driver. I am. I, it's, it, the story's already going bad when you have to preface that you're a really good driver. Like, you know that it's just, it's all downhill from here. But I'm a very good driver, I assure you. However, if I don't have a road map, I'm getting lost. It does not matter if the, straight, or if the street is straight. I'm getting lost. Somehow, I will figure out a way to get lost. And I'm so, like, I'm not, it's, it's weird. I'm not so stubborn that I won't get out and ask for directions, but then I am stubborn to where I want to try to problem solve it first. Like, I have a, a fixed point where it's like, okay, we need to get some help. But it takes a little bit for me to get there, right? And if you think about it, Without the invention of our smartphones, how would we know where things are? Well, we'd, we'd be given a map, right? Chances are we, we might be those individuals or we have family members that they have a map of the state in their car. My grandfather was one of them. I mean, he, just, he, he would read a map. I mean, he's planning a trip to Colorado, they're driving cross country, and he's looking at the map, and he's planning the stops, and he's looking at all the roads, because he's a navigator. He wants to be able to get to his destination, and he doesn't want to have some little adventurous side routes, right? Some, some very planned, very intentional, adventurous side routes, right? He doesn't want any of those. Well, if I don't have a map, if I don't have my phone, I get lost unless there's landmarks. If there's landmarks, if somebody tells me, hey, you need to go up this street, and then you're going to see a waterfall on the left. And once you see the waterfall, you're about two miles away. Two miles to me is like, okay, cool. That's just like a random number to me when it comes to mileage. I'm like, okay, that's probably like, you know, a couple steps. I could probably run that maybe. And then you're trying to run it, and you're like, wow, it's a lot longer than I, than I thought. So, you know, two miles, okay, that's kind of vague to me, right? But waterfall, got it, right? Then you go up, and after the waterfall, you're going you're to go up, and then there's going to be like this barn, and it's red, and it's got this giant door, and you turn left there. I'm not going to get lost. I'm going to see the waterfall, and then I'm going to see the barn, and I'm going to make a left-hand turn. And then if they tell me that there's another landmark 
whether that's a, a, a weirdly named street or, you know, some type of, you know, a big field with, you know, some cows or whatever it is. If you can show me a landmark that I can travel by, I will not get lost. Period. I get lost all the time. But with landmarks, I'll never get lost because I'm looking for them. Right? Instead of me trying to listen or me trying to follow, like, okay, yeah, I think it's, okay, yeah, I think this is the street. Because sometimes you're, the map looks weird, just in all honesty. But if there's a landmark, you can't miss it. And so how beautiful is it that God did not give the Magi any chance of getting lost? He gave them a star. And that star being a, an infinite landmark. This light in the sky that's traveling, that's guiding them. But then think about their journey. They don't have the same scriptures. They don't know that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. They don't, they don't have that awareness. They're going off of Balaam. But they know that, the, that there's a new star in the sky. And so then they're thinking, okay, we'll follow it. But you can't see stars during the day. So they have to go on this journey that takes time. And in that journey, they're forced to pause. And they're forced to, to wait out until darkness comes again, and then there's the light, then there's the star. And so as they're waiting, think of the, the faith challenge that they're having to embrace. Are we, are we just going crazy here, guys? Like, we just, we just saw that there was like this new star, and it looks like it's moving, but like all stars kind of look like they're moving, because when you move, you can still kind of see them. Like, are we just going crazy here? Because we kind of just like up and left. And now we're like a couple, you know, hundreds of miles away or, you know, 50 miles away or whatever. And we're, we can only travel by night. Our food might be running low. Are we just kind of going crazy? Think about that internal struggle. Think about that faith that the wise men had to have in just a tiny portion of inspired scripture. And then they get to the place that they think, oh, this is where they're going to know. Like everyone's, they're probably going to be lining up the streets. They're going to be, you know, proclaiming a national holidays. Like it's going to be fantastic. Everyone's going to be like, wow, here he is. So where do they go? They're smart. They're wise. They go to the palace. And yet there's not Jesus. Jesus is not there. He's not in the palace. He's king. He's born king. And yet he's not in a palace. And notice where they don't go. They don't go to a synagogue. He's not found in a synagogue. So he's not found in a palace, and he's not found in a synagogue. He's found in a home. They go and they find Jesus in a home. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they've, they've followed the star again after leaving Herod, and they see the star, and it hovers or it stands over this place where Jesus is, the child is. And so they see it, and what do they do first? Before they even go in, they rejoice. They spend a moment rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. I don't know about y'all, but... Uh, I was always the kid that was begging my parents to open some presents on Christmas Eve. I don't know about y'all, but I am bad with surprises. I want to just know. The minute that I know there's a surprise, I'm like, what is it? Is it this? 
And I'm trying to guess, right? I, when I have arrived at my destination, I'm not somebody that's like, okay, let's linger in the car. Like, I'm out of the car and I'm trying to lock it already. And people who are still lingering are hearing my truck's noise of like, the door's still ajar, you need to close the door, beep. Because I'm just like, let's go. Let's just get in the place. Let's go get whatever we're here to do. I don't want to pause and be like, oh, yes, we made it. I'm just not that type of person. And I wonder of all the moments that I've missed where God has come through on his promise to me and I've just gone a little bit over it. I've just, I've just overstepped. Instead of pausing and, and thinking, wow, God, like, it's, it's pretty amazing that you, were, that you were true, that you said this and you brought it about. And so I'm going to pause real fast. Before I even get to enter into the fulfillment of your promise, I'm going to pause and thank you for who you are. That's what the wise men do. They're not Jews. They're not Israelites. They're not a part of God's covenantal people. And yet, here they are. They're the ones, the foreigners, those who are supposed to be far from God, are the ones who are at the house. And before they enter in, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And then in verse 11, it says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Can you imagine being one of the wise men and you step in and you're, you're thinking, here has just been the king, the Messiah, the one of promise has been born. And you walk in and as you've journeyed, you've started to create this narrative, this story in your mind of what the baby is like. Like maybe the baby is, is you can already see that the baby is strong. Or maybe you can already see that the baby is just, just beautiful. Right, it's just the cutest baby. And you're starting to create this story. And then you step in, and your story meets the real story, and you see Jesus. And think of the vulnerability that Jesus has in that moment. I mean, who knows in that home? The wise men probably outnumbered the family members. So you have Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, and here you have these three wise men. Think of the vulnerability that Jesus has in that moment. I mean, it's amazing. He's a baby. And yet the most powerful point here is that Jesus, the king of the universe, was not found in a palace or a synagogue, but he was found in a home. Now, the Bible really tells this concrete story that's very linear, and it's all about how God wants to be near to us. How he is, he's, no matter what we've done, no matter what obstacles we place in his way, He's going to circumnavigate, go over, break through, whatever he can do to bring himself to this point where he almost tiptoes on the line, but he doesn't overstep because he won't force himself on anyone. But no matter what defense mechanism we have, he's going to go around everything imaginable to bring himself to that point where all he has to do is, you just have to say, hey, yes, I'll, I'll embrace you, and he just gets to step. He just gets to hug. He just gets to embrace. That's, that's who Jesus is. When I think of the story of Christmas, I think of this song by, um, by Bethel, and it's called Pieces. And it talks about how God does not give us his heart in pieces. He does not give a little bit of his love to us and then waits for us to kind of uh, affirm that we're going to be faithful to it. No, he gives his entire heart to us. Not a tiny bit. No, his entire heart. How do we know this? Well, love is incredibly vulnerable. True love is vulnerable because you will get hurt 
because you are placing your heart in somebody else's hands. And so there is this potential to be hurt, to be broken, to develop some, some pain because of it. Like that love is completely vulnerable. And so there is Jesus, and he's a baby. He's probably one years old or two years old, and he's in a home, and here are the wise men, and he's a baby. But that's God in the flesh as a baby, completely vulnerable. He doesn't know what's going on. He has no idea who these wise men are. He's not talking to them. He's a baby. Vulnerability. C.S. Lewis has this great quote on love where he essentially says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And yet here is the story of all stories, the story of Jesus. The convergence of every possible good story ever told, found in its true reality, the story of Jesus, and he is completely vulnerable. God has given himself entirely. And Jesus is not found in the higher upper class. He's not found with the religious elite. He's found with a humble family. A humble family. They didn't even have enough money to get, an inn, to get a room in the inn. They couldn't find a room in the inn. They didn't have enough money to, to go to you know, where there might be a midwife to be able to give birth. They, they don't have that type of money. And so he's born in a manger. This year... If anything, we've learned that maybe those aspirations of wanting to work from home weren't actually as accurate as we may have dreamt of when we weren't forced to work from home. As we've spent more time in our homes, maybe we've started to ponder, God, where are you in my life? Maybe we've started to ponder that we have to go to this religious place, like a church, to encounter God. Maybe we've, maybe we've thought to ourselves that we have to go to, to some sacred area to be able to encounter God, and yet here is God saying, no, 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 no. I have come to you, and I will be found in your homes. I'll be found in the ordinary of every day. In fact, the Bible makes this very compelling case that Christianity is not like all the other religions, because with, with Islam, you want, to, you want to take this journey to Mecca. You want to go to the, the holy place, the, uh, to the place where it's, you're a good Muslim if you go. Right? Religions have these kind of rules and regulations where if you go to this place, you'll have a, a, a deeper experience. And yet here is Christianity, and it's God saying, look, I have come to you so that you can have a relationship with me. I have come vulnerably I have come completely, not in pieces, holistically, wholeheartedly, I have come to you. There's this uh, book called The Shattered Lantern because sometimes, uh, it's, uh, the author is Ronald Rollheiser, and, and he basically talks about how sometimes we struggle to see God in our everyday. Sometimes we struggle to see what God is doing in our lives. And so this is what he says. He says, imagine taking a walk in a beautiful forest. 
on a splendid summer's day, the earth is ablaze with the fire of God, and the sights, sounds, and smells are enough to make you want to take your shoes off before the burning bush. So imagine this amazing situation where you're, you're, you're in this place and you just feel as if the presence of God is right there, so much so that you're almost willing to take your shoes off because you feel like you're standing on holy ground. But then he says this, but if your mind and heart are hopelessly torn, and if, for example, you are painfully infatuated with someone who has rejected you, you will see virtually nothing. You are inside yourself, torn by your pain, endlessly reviewing past and future conversations, possibilities, and fantasies. You can be in this situation where there's beauty all around you and yet you don't see it because you're looking inwardly. You're, you're looking at failures. You're looking at rejection. You're looking at your trauma and the times that you've fallen short and you're thinking, I'm not deserving of this beauty. And so you don't even see it. You could be in the situation where God is right in front of you, but if you're looking inwardly, you won't see him. And yet, God is right there, but he will feel distant. Jesus, in his final moments, he lets out this prayer, and he says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we know that God has not forsaken him, but he's, he's feeling the weight of sin on himself, and so he feels like God is far. But by faith, he has to believe that God is actually near. Jesus was born in a home because he wants to be able to identify with every single one of us. He doesn't want us to be able to create any reason for why he can't we can't relate to him. Because in his life, death, and resurrection, we have complete reason, complete privilege to relate to him. Because he's truly stood in our place in every regard. In fact, it says in Hebrews that he's tasted death for everyone. Not some people, not just this type of person or this type of person. No, everyone. He stood in the place for everyone. This concept of, of God being near to us is one that we often struggle with. And I know that we often struggle with it because there's a verse in the Bible that is probably one of the most challenging. It says this, and I, I changed a word. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, it says, Pray without a dialeptos. Pray without a dialeptos. Now, you might know this verse as pray without ceasing. But when you hear that, I think, okay, so I'm supposed to just sit in my room. I'm supposed to just kind of sit over here and just constantly audibly talk with God. That's what it means to pray without ceasing, is to just constantly be in communication with him to where it's just like, yeah, God, you know, I'm, I'm tying my shoe right now. Okay, God, I'm, I'm brushing my teeth right now. Okay, God, I'm, you know, I'm going. Is that what it's talking about? Because sometimes that's what we think about. We think that to pray without ceasing means that we have to be in constant, this complete, constant, visual, auditory, sensory connection with God. But the word, a dialeptos, does not actually mean when we hear uh, not ceasing, pray without ceasing, as in the sense of you never stop. What it means is to have a definite connection that's not severed. 
That's what it means, a dialeptos, to have a definite connection that's not severed. Well, we have that all the time. Because I can text a friend of mine, and they might not respond immediately, but I know that they'll get back to me. So I have a definite connection that's unsevered just by sending a text message. Now, there might be a moment where I have to wait, but I have that definite connection. They're going to respond. And if they don't respond by text, they might respond in person. But I have that unsevered relationship. I have that, that communication. I have that connection via a dialeptos with them. And so to pray without ceasing means to go about our lives knowing that God has drawn so near to us that he is right here. And that we just have to, by faith, acknowledge that. Even when we feel at our lowest. Even when we feel like we've gone too far. Even when we feel like we've stumbled again. And God, we promised you that we wouldn't do that again. But then we went and we did it and then we spiraled. No, no, no. God is still right there. He's still so close to us. And the Christmas story is the most profound story to illustrate that. Because there is Jesus, permanently identified with humanity. In fact, did you know that Jesus got his ear pierced? Did you know that he got his ear pierced? So there's this passage in the Bible, and it's in the Psalms. And it talks about how uh, the Messiah would have his ear pierced. And so my natural inclination, or my natural thought as an early young Christian was, was it the left ear or the right ear, was my first thought when I heard this. But the psalmist is actually playing off of a passage in the Old Testament where if you fell on hard times and you had to go into indentured servitude, you would give yourself over to a family that would be able to take care of you. And as you were a servant, not a slave, but a servant, and you fell in love with somebody else who fell on hard times and were also in indentured servitude, and then you had a family, after seven years you could leave. But if you loved your wife, and you loved your kids, and you loved your master, you could permanently stay. And if you permanently stayed, you would have your ear pierced. And so it wasn't a sign of, oh, I'm a servant because I fell on hard times, or I mismanaged my money. No, it was a badge of honor that you loved the new family that you had become a part of, that you were willing to display it publicly with your ear being pierced. And so when the psalmist talks about Jesus, the Messiah, having his ear pierced, what he's actually talking about has, is how Jesus permanently linked himself to humanity by becoming a child, by becoming a man, so much so that he will always exist as the human Jesus, but is still God in the flesh. That is the, the dissension of Jesus. That's how low he came for us. And so when we start to think God might be a little too far away from us, that's a lie. That's a false story. Because he came so close that we can actually have an leptos relationship with him. One that is unsevered, unceasing. Frank Laubach says this, Oh, this thing of keeping in constant touch with God, of making him the object of my thought and the companion of my conversations, is the most amazing thing I ever ran across. To have a relationship with Jesus is the greatest thing. 
Not one where the only time that we have a relationship with Jesus is when we sit down to study the Bible. Not one where the only time we have a relationship with Jesus is when we come to church. Not one where the only time we feel close to God is when we're listening to that, that soundtrack that we have on repeat that helps us feel connected to God a little bit more. No, having a real unsevered relationship with Jesus, knowing that he is right there with us every step of the way because of how far he was willing to go to be born in a manger, to be found in a home, to be completely vulnerable is the greatest thing that we will ever experience. So much so that it causes us to kind of do some, some pretty gnarly things. David Livingston, one of my favorite missionaries, he goes to Africa, he's a doctor, he makes these several trips back and forth to, uh, to Europe, back to Africa. In fact, he, he was so committed that he was, he was in the heart of Africa. And a reporter shows up, and David Livingston is, is the, the only Westerner that he has seen. And so he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Very first line that this reporter, who's an atheist, staunch atheist, comes to find Dr. Livingston, so that he can ask him some questions, interview him, and try to maybe debate him a little bit on his beliefs. And as he lives with Dr. Livingston, he realizes that Dr. Livingston is completely different. He's not like any other man he's ever seen. Now, David Livingston has survived attacks from, from lions. He's, his face is marred. I mean, he's, he's gone through the thick of it. He's had to bury his loved ones. And yet, when asked about how he was able to continue on, he says this, Shall I tell you what supported me through all those years of exile among a people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude towards me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It was this adialeptos connection of how far Jesus had come to have a relationship with David Livingston that he said, it enabled me, it empowered me, it supported me through thick and thin. The fact that the God of the universe who created everything would humble himself to be found in a home, to be born in a manger, to be completely vulnerable, to give his entire heart, not in pieces, but in its fullest essence, in its fullness of vulnerability, the promise that he would come that far to be with me always has what, is what has supported me. That's the story of Christmas. Is that God would leave his throne, his palace, would not go and be found in a palace on earth, would not go and be found in a synagogue with the religious elite, but would go and be found in a humble home because that's how far he's willing to go to be in relationship with us. It's the greatest story. It's the truest story. There's no, no better story. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we thank you for these three wise men that wouldn't have known about the star had it not been for Balaam, an individual who was a prophet of sorts for hire, and yet you included him in your story. Because God, that's the God that you are. You include imperfect often uh, against you people in your story because you are writing a better story, a more complete story, a story that is actually good news and not built on false promises.
And Lord, this year's been tough for many of us. We've had to spend more time at home, and we've had these moments where maybe we felt like you were distant. And so, Lord, may you show us through the story of your birth, through the story of you being found in a home, that you are willing to have this unsevered, unceasing connection with us, that we can talk with you always, that we can be with you always, because you have promised, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Lord, there is nowhere that we can go to be away from you. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that. And we ask that it would be that good news, that promise of your love, that would empower us to see this year through and to embrace, ultimately, a better story, one that will go on for eternity. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.